Good morning. It's good to be apart together. My friend, Dr. Mike, sent me that video last week and told me he has real hope that some good and lasting change might come out of what we're going through together right now. And I hope, I pray he's right. Because I do think that hindsight can be 2020. You know, last week we continued our series about unlikely heroes by talking about one of Jesus' first followers, a man named Peter. And I have to tell you that as I think about what life looks like right now, and this hope that maybe we can let go of the worst parts of the world behind us and cling to the best parts of what we've rediscovered in this pandemic, Peter's story becomes more and more compelling to me. Because I keep coming back to this reality that if Peter can do this, anyone can. If Jesus will accept, love, like, enlist, and trust Peter, Maybe there's a place for me. Maybe even there's hope for me. Because the truth is, I all too often feel weak and frail, brittle, thin, shallow, yet at other times, invincible, capable, resilient, and brave. And I'm just amazed at how often these feelings come and go within me in relatively short periods of time. So Peter is an unlikely hero of mine, the way a role model is. Not because I think he's perfect, but because of how Jesus loves him and changes him and changes the world through him in spite of, maybe even through, Peter's imperfections. And so this morning, instead of looking at another unlikely hero, I'd like to invite us to take a second look at Peter. In fact, we're going to stay right with the same story that we were in last week because there is so much life to be found in it. And by that, I don't mean easy answers. By life, I mean stark, raving honesty, which is what makes hindsight 2020, right? Honesty about what it means to be human, what we have to face, to deal with, and to ultimately overcome if we're going to flourish in life, if we're going to experience what we want, what we were made for, this thing that Jesus calls the abundant life. So last week we saw how Peter, after Jesus had been crucified um, and resurrected, goes fishing. Now right there is something that we have to stop and wonder about. Like, and, and I'm just going to say it. I think way too often living in and living out the grace of God, like Peter, like Peter was clearly invited to do and is trying to do with his life, Way too often that's presented or marketed by the religious establishment as something almost magical. I mean, too many people talk way too optimistically and whimsically about what placing our faith in Jesus looks like and even feels like. Like everything changes and you're never the same and you get a brand new heart. And while all of that is true and it is miraculous, it isn't magical. And there is a difference. I mean, just consider what's happening with Peter. He has just, in, just in the last few days, gone from swearing he'd follow Jesus, even to his own death, to denying Jesus publicly three times right after that. Then he watched Jesus die on a cross and hides in fear for three days. 
only to see this once dead, now resurrected Jesus standing right in front of him in the flesh in this same small room. So what does Peter's life look like now after all that? What instantaneous and, and magical change has occurred because of all this? Does Peter start levitating? Does he no longer need to drink water or eat food or breathe? Is he magically filled with all the wisdom of the world and some divine perspective on life? No, none of that. The next thing Peter does, he goes fishing. You know, what he always does. I'm not saying Peter hasn't been impacted or changed forever. He has. But what I'm saying is miracles are often long and arduous. They're a process. Look, massive trees grow from tiny seeds. That is a miracle. It's a long, slow, deliberate process of growth. A frog becoming a prince, that is magic. And way too often, the life of faith is presented as a frog to prince story, as magic. And then when someone doesn't experience the magical fairy tale, like right now, they assume it just didn't work for them, or God actually isn't on their side, and they walk away. And that's so very tragic because Peter's story isn't like that either. Which is why I think it is, it's so, so very important to really take the Bible seriously and to see all that it says and all the kinds of things that it says that we don't really want it to say. You see, we want it to say something like, hey, Peter, you've just become a follower of Jesus. What are you going to do? And his response is, I'm going to Disney World. But it doesn't. It says things like this after being 100% absolutely convinced that you know God, that you've seen him in the flesh, and that you've actually physically walked and talked with the creator of the universe, Peter, what are you going to do? And Peter's answer is, go fishing. It's not a very magical start. Not at all. Which is why I'm given to believing it's true, frankly. Because no human being would ever write this, would ever make this story up. It's too plain. It's too honest. It's too up. It's too down. It's all over the place. And, and while there are plenty of miracles in Peter's story, there's no magic in it. No wishful thinking. No instantaneous happily ever after. Just a whole lot of real life. Yes. Peter is being slowly infused with a deep sense of meaning, gravity, purpose, love, and grace over a long period of time. It's a miracle, but it isn't magic. And this is where we find Peter. He's at the very beginning of his miracle. Personal friends with the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and he proceeds directly right back into his everyday real life. You see, following Jesus doesn't magically solve his need to feed his family. And it's so critical for us to see this scene unfold as it does just days after Easter and just days after Peter becoming one of the very first Christians. Because Jesus begins to work in the life of Peter 
not an instantaneous magic fairy tale, but a long, slow, good, and miraculous story. So last week, we left off with how Jesus invited Peter to cast his nets, his wants, his concerns, what he's looking for out of life onto God's side of the boat. And then there's this miraculous catch of 153 fish. So that's where we were, but that's far from the end of this story. And so we're going to pick it up where Jesus takes this moment when Peter has gone from broke to absolutely loaded, when he's sitting on top of a pile of fish, which means a pile of money in his day, to Jesus takes that opportunity to not so subtly remind Peter that, hey, just a few days ago, buddy, you were backing down from even knowing me. And then the Bible says that Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Three times. Now, according to tradition, Jesus asked him one time for each time that Peter had denied him. And maybe so. But there's something else going on here, too. Just like last week, we saw Jesus' invitation to cast our nets on his side as the path from arrogance and the anxiety that it causes in our life into flourishing. In this question, do you love me? Jesus is graciously, mercifully inviting Peter to dispose of an anchor that will drag his life to the bottom of the sea. And it's called idolatry. Now, that's a weird word, I know. It feels like a church word, a religious word, an ancient word, and it's all of those things. But it's also something that we all struggle with all the time. One author goes so far as to say that the human heart is an idol-making factory. You see, an idol is anything that we put our trust in. If we could just have it or attain it or control it, it will give us what we really want. An idol is our magical means to our fairy tale ending. And it can be anything. But the problem is, idols always fail. I love that song. It's an ode to idols. <laughs> all of these things that he's done, all of these things that he has, and yet he still hasn't found what he's looking for. That's Peter's story. Having just been alleviated of his arrogance, his need for certainty, his desire to trust in himself and his self-sufficiency and what he can provide for himself by Jesus' invitation to throw his net on God's side, now we see Jesus nurturing the miracle by going after the very next thing lurking in Peter's heart, in every human heart. Because right there with arrogance and the anxiety it breeds in our soul is idolatry and the self-sufficiency it weaves into our lives. And God doesn't mess around when it comes to idolatry. In fact, the very first of the Ten Commandments goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, no idolatry. 
Now, this seems very serious, right? Like, when I read the Ten Commandments, I always feel like God was having a bad hair day. Like, geez, like, lighten up, God. And no one reads the Ten Commandments and thinks, this is a God I really want to hang out with. It reminds me of the advice new teachers get from veteran teachers. Don't let your students see you smile till Christmas. The first commandment sets that kind of tone. And the question is, why? What's it to God what I have faith in? Or for what? Why does he care about idolatry? Now, I truly believe that this is one of the reasons people are highly suspicious of God, because he comes off like the teacher who never smiles sometimes. And at first glance, this no other gods before me business makes God look petty, like needy, like a spoiled child who has to be appeased and coddled all the time. But there's more to it than that. And believe it or not, God's condemnation of idolatry isn't about him, and it's not for him. It's about us, and it's for us. To get at this, there are a few things that we need to know about idols. And the first thing is that, is that they're, they're easy to see in other people's lives, but very difficult to see in our own. I mean, we all have friends that when we look at their lives, you know, we see they're too attached to their things or too proud of their job or too obsessed with how they look or how they're perceived by other people. But it takes some serious introspection and self-awareness to see and then admit when something or someone or some aspect of life has become our idol, the thing that we, that our lives revolve around. See, most of the time, we don't realize it, that something's our idol, until it's threatened. I think this is why this pandemic has been so hard on some of us. I mean, for some of us, our idol has been exposed, as in taken away from us, because maybe it was our power or position or prestige in our job. Maybe it was how many fish we had in our bank account. Maybe it was how many people really liked being around us and how much we got out of that. For others, the stay-at-home order has, been, has exposed our idol as impotent, totally ineffectual. Like, sheesh, I don't, I guess it doesn't matter. If I have X, Y, and Z, I, can, I still have to shelter in place. I could still lose my job, a loved one, or even my life. For me, it's been this, like coming into this studio to film these online gatherings. I don't like it. It has exposed an idol of mine. See, I love being able to see and talk with all of you before and after gatherings. And while that isn't a bad thing, in fact, it's a good thing. For me at times, that thing has become an idol. It's not just a good thing, it's become my God thing. So hypothetically speaking, if I were struggling with, say, approval or affirmation as an idol, having to do this online like this might really bother me. And it does. It's difficult to battle against an idol that you don't know you have, especially when it's camouflaged as a good thing. 
which is the second thing we need to know about idols. Idols are often good things. And believe it or not, the most destructive idols are not overtly bad or evil things. We can and we often do trust in things that are good, pleasurable, even right. But the problem is when we turn a good thing into our God. That scene is from the film, The End of Tour, which is about the author, David Foster Wallace. Over 20 years ago, he began to see the danger of our new click, compare, and consume culture, and how the internet and online everything instantaneously could kill us if we don't develop some new machinery in our guts to keep it from becoming an idol, our God. So idols are hard to see in our own life primarily because, and usually because, they're good things. They've just become our God. But Wallace clues us in here, not just to what makes it so difficult to fight against idolatry, but what makes it so critical to do so. Because the third thing we have to realize is that idols consume you. This is the reason God forgives forbids us to have idols. It isn't because he wants something from us. It's because he wants something for us. And he knows that when we worship idols, regardless of what it is or how good it is, convenience or control or compassion or approval or prestige or whatever it is, in a very real and meaningful way, we will die. God doesn't need us to place our faith in him for his happiness. He's inviting us to place our faith in him for our happiness, peace, joy, and freedom. And God knows that can only happen when our God is God. David Foster Wallace didn't identify it this way, but the machinery in our guts that he intuitively knows we need is faith in God and the God of all grace and God's ability to fill our nets with what matters most, him and his love. This is why Jesus says to Peter, who's celebrating this remarkable catch of fish, he's standing knee deep, right, in a pile of I win, I'm on top of money. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, that is a serious party foul, right? Do you love me more than these? I mean, here we are, back to God needing to be praised, like loved. It's not a good look at first glance. But that isn't what Jesus is asking us. He isn't saying, do you love me more than these, like more than these guys or more than those guys? He's saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish? Do you love me more than you love your idol? The thing that you think if you could just get it, have it, or keep it, it would get you what you really want. See, here's the thing that we need to see. God isn't asking this question because it hurts him 
for us to have idols. It's because it hurts us. The issue isn't do we love God more than others because God only loves the top 10% or the top 50% of people. No. God loves everyone all the time, everywhere, every day. The issue before us all is do we love God and trust that he is better for us than our idols, than the things that we tend to live for that won't, that can't die and then live for us like he did. You see, when we worship idols, they will in time destroy us because there just isn't enough power or comfort or pleasure or approval or affirmation or security in the world. We were made for more than all the world has to offer, which is why we feel empty even, maybe even especially when we have it all. But there is more than enough of God to slowly and miraculously weave the miracle of God's grace into our soul. Now, I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe life is working for you. And if it is, I'm glad. Maybe you're knee-deep in fish. But how long will it last? The next fiscal quarter? Or maybe the next report card? Or doctor's appointment? Or phone call? Could change everything. How reliable are your idols? Or maybe you're like me, going through what we're going through and you're recognizing that your idols are gonna leave you empty if you keep worshiping them. And eventually, we will die. This is why Jesus, who he is, how he lived, what he did for us on the cross, what he longs to do in us, with us, and through us, in our real everyday lives, this is why he is so central and foundational and critical for our lives to really flourish. By throwing our nets on God's side, we release our hold on arrogance and the anxiety that comes with it. By answering Jesus' question this morning, do you love me more than these, even the good things in your life? With yes, well, that begins the slow but sure miracle of connecting our life to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the discovery that when God is our God, we may find ourselves in the same boat, but it's a very different story. One where we realize if we haven't got God as our God, we don't really have anything at all. Thank you, Kesia. I love that song. If I ain't got you, I ain't got nothing at all. Jesus hates idolatry because he loves us. He condemns idolatry because it won't work. He invites us to trust in him, to throw our nets, to throw our very lives on his side of the boat, not because it's magic, but because it keeps good things good without making them God. Do you love me more than these? It's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. 
After last week's message, my friends Paul and Beth texted me and they asked me this question. Mike, why 153 fish? Well, it's actually not a random detail. 153 is the number of the different kinds of fish at the Sea of Galilee at that time. Now, maybe Jesus was suggesting that the way you love me best, Peter, is to love who I love most. Maybe it was Jesus' way of saying, remember, Peter, that our relationship began with the invitation to be a fisher of men. Well, I love every fish in the sea, each and every kind. Fish for them with your life. And watch what happens, not just through you, but to you and in you. Watch what your idols go back to being good things and your life miraculously begin to flourish. It's an unlikely story for an unlikely person who's a lot like me and you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be apart together. We thank you for the ways that you come to us in our lives, that you invite us to throw our nets on your side, that you invite us to ask hard questions about what it is, where it is, that we are looking for answers, for ways to flourish in life. God, I pray that this week you would give us the courage to see the idols, the anchors in our boat. And I pray that we would have the faith to throw them overboard so that we could follow you into deeper waters, fishing for every kind of person like you've invited us to. God, thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for not giving up on us. We thank you that um, you're a God of miracles and not magic. As we log off this morning, I pray that you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, folks, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to have a Zoom call right now, right afterwards. If you scroll down and click on the button, I'll see you there. Thanks.